Mark 1. Conversations at the speed of sound. Hello and welcome to this episode of Mac 1, the podcast of the Queensland Air Museum Caloundra. My name is Gary Hills. I am a QAM volunteer, which I'm very pleased to say. And I'll be your host for this very supersonic episode of Mac 1. In fact, I suppose this one could be called Mac 2, because you're going to hear a lot about the Dassault Mirage, which in our case in Australia became the GAF, Government Aircraft Factory Mirage, the Mirage 3O. That's coming up very soon with... Air Vice Marshal retired Dave Dunlop. Before we get to that, let me just let you know about next week's episode. I don't know if you know about the Sea Eagles. They may not be who you think they are. The Sea Eagles, attached to the Aero Club at the Sunshine Coast Aerodrome, is a bunch of young, enthusiastic pilots and would-be pilots, aviation enthusiasts, who get together on a regular basis to socialise and share their stories and their experiences of flying, to encourage each other on their journey as they uh, embark upon a career as pilots. Now, in this episode next week, you're going to hear a conversation with the Sea Eagles, some of the stories they have to share as very young pilots and the experiences that they've had. And I asked one of the volunteers at the QAM, Luca Jones, who's also a member of the Sea Eagles, to conduct the interview to facilitate the conversation. So it's a slightly different episode next week. It's great fun. These guys are full of enthusiasm and the stories they tell are great. But it's just such a a marvellous little organisation. It's very hopeful is the way I feel about it. So that's the Sea Eagles next week on Mac 1. Just for now, you're about to hear all about Australia's mirages, what they did, how important they were, and what became of them as we talk with Dave Dunlop. Well, we're in the Queensland Air Museum studio and I'm sitting here today with RAAF Air Vice Marshal retired and QAM volunteer and guide Dave Dunlop. G'day, Dave. Morning, how are you? I'm very well and thank you for joining me today. We've got a fascinating topic to discuss today and that's the Dassault Mirage. I believe it's probably more correct to say GAF Mirage. That would be correct. Yes, which we have on display here, A316. So we'll get to that after we do a little bit of background. If you could just explain to us what was the thinking behind the development of the Mirage in the first place? What was its role to be what was its design features so if you look at the development of fighters um, during world war ii and post world war ii probably up to 1970 the holy grail if you like of the design was to go faster so if you look at the museum's aircraft you go from the mustang to the vampire to the the meteor saber and then mirage all of them uh, are increases in speed. 
And it's pretty basic, I suppose, because if you had an aircraft that was faster than the enemy and then you were armed with either machine gun or cannon, then if you could catch that, you could shoot it down. Mm. If you were faster than the enemy, they probably couldn't catch you. Mm. So the, if you like, as, a, as I said, the holy grail was go faster. In Australia's case, we had the Avon Sabre, uh, it was transonic and that at the bottom of a dive it could actually go supersonic but it couldn't sustain supersonic speed because it didn't have the power and its uh, design characteristics limited its total speed or its uh, maximum speed. In Europe and in the United States and elsewhere, uh, the research had found that if you wanted to go to supersonic then to Mach 2, twice the speed of sound, then there were different aerodynamics required, sweeping the wings back as, we, as they'd done, say, on the Sabre or the Hunter, uh, would achieve a certain amount of uh, speed ability, but Mach 2 needed a different design. So in Europe, um, you had different aircraft types that had been looked at to achieve Mach 2. The British had the Lightning with uh, its characteristic thin swept-back wing. The French had looked at research into the Delta, as had done the United States. Now tell us why it's called Delta. Uh, it's a triangular shape, and in aerodynamics or aircraft design, it's called a Delta. I think I, the I, Greek alphabet, the, the Delta, is the shape of a triangle. triangle. Yeah. Okay. So that shape allowed for the aerodynamic uh, characteristics to allow for Mark II flight. And sustained Mark Sustained II. flight, yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So the French had looked uh, at a number of aircraft before it, the Mirage 1 and 2, which were prototypes. The Mirage 3, I think, first flew at about 1956 and with upgrades to the engine where it was able to achieve Mach 2. In Australia... Um, the Air Force was, had realised that it needed to replace the Sabre. The obvious choice was to have a Mach 2 capability. That's what the rest of the world had gone to. And so that was uh, what the Air Force requirement was uh, looking at at the time. I think the Mirage was developed as a, an interceptor primarily, in, initially, was that right? That's correct. But it, did we need interceptors or what did we need? Well, we needed more of an air defence fighter, not just an interceptor. Europe was looking at a short-range point defence, if you like, get up to altitude very quickly, and that certainly was one of the requirements for the Mirage, was to be able to get, I think, to 60,000 feet in so many minutes. Yeah. Uh, if you look at the... English side of it, they developed the Lightning and it certainly was an interceptor, point inter interceptor with uh, two engines climb uh, to altitude very quickly and accelerate very quickly. United States was a little different, uh, probably because of its geography, much larger landmass. Uh, but certainly they were looking for a Mach 2 capability. So when the Air Force started looking at a replacement for the Sabre. It was a sh it, it um, was a foregone conclusion they were looking for a Mach two capable aircraft. So the Australian government was able to look at options in the United States and in Europe, 
Well, what sort of competition did the Mirage have at that point in our in our minds? Well, there was a, the association with the Mirage started, I think, in '59, round about there, with uh, a, a test pilot who was on exchange in the UK, um, flying officer Talbot. Um, he was at Boscombe Down, I believe, on exchange. He was tasked to go over to France and do some test flying of the Mirage. Uh, he and uh, Wing Commander Compton, who was in London, part of the RWF team there, um, wrote a report on the Mirage specifically. But then um, a fighter evaluation team was formed in late 1960. It was actually headed up by the then Chief of the Air Staff, Air Marshal Sir Frederick Sherger. It had uh, RAF personnel, but also people from the Department of uh, Supply and from Commonwealth Aircraft Corporation. So it was not just looking at the aircraft from an Air Force perspective, but from manufacturing as well. Mm. And they uh, went to Europe and the US and they looked at a number of aircraft. I, I think it was the Republic F-105, uh, the English Electra Lightning that I've mentioned, an aircraft that later on became made by Northrop that became the F-5, the Mirage III, and also the F-104G, the Starfighter, made by Lockheed. That aircraft had been adopted by a number of European com- uh, countries and certainly by the United States Air Force. So out of that array of possibilities, uh, the combination of needs for Australia, including manufacturing at the government aircraft factory, they decided on the Mirage Three. Yes, and, and I believe it's the Mirage 3O. Why is it called? Why, why does it have that designation? Well, there's a, a few stories, but the one I like the best, and <laughs> whether it's true or not doesn't matter, it's a good story, um, was that uh, the Mirage A, uh, the Mirage 3A had been built and was being used by the French Air Force. Australia had some specific requirements, therefore it was going to be a slightly different aircraft. Uh, therefore would need a different designation. And I think it was um, someone from Dassault, maybe even Mr Dassault himself, who suggested that um, the Mirage 3O, O being for Australia. <laughs> Whether that's true or not, I'm sure some of our listeners might know the truth of it. Australia. Australia. With well, o. he's allowed to do that because I call him Dassault, but it's Dassault, is that Dassault. right? Dassault Mirage, okay. So, so they, they designated them Mirage 3O. That's correct. Okay. And talk about the government aircraft factory and the Commonwealth Aircraft Corporation because local manufacturing here was a big part of the whole uh, mix, wasn't it? Yes. Well, Australia had made the decision pre-World War II to develop an aircraft um, manufacturing capability, the Beaufort, um, was was produced in Australia and I think there were something like 27,000 people involved in mm. the manufacturing of that aircraft in World War II. Mm. Post, um, in post-World War II, we had um, been involved in building the aircraft we required, uh, the Sabre. Uh, we'd adopted the Sabre as our fighter to replace the de Havilland Vampire, but also the, the Meteor. The Boston Meteor. Mm. But because we were building the Canberra in Australia under licence, 
and also the Rolls-Royce Avon engine for it, um, the decision was made to use that engine in the Sabre and it became the Avon Sabre or the CAC Sabre. When they originally looked at manufacturing the Mirage in Australia, because that was going to be the continuation that we would manufacture the uh, airframe and, and components as well as the engine as part of Australia's capability, then um, I believe there was serious consideration of using an upgraded Avon with an afterburner instead of the Attar. Um, the I, French Attar. The French Attar, mm. which I might add was a development of a BMW engine of World War Two, or design anyway. So uh, manufacture was important. Uh, the first two aircraft were imported from France, but then uh, the content, the Australian content, increased until I believe A316, which is our aircraft here at the museum, was the first one that was totally manufactured of Australian components. So a part of the mix was the the GAF and the capacity to manufacture the aircraft here and so on. Obviously, the primary component was the role that this aircraft was going to play uh, for the RAAF. So what was that? Describe that. And initially, I, um, it was to fulfil an air defence role. In other words, protecting Australia and um, areas that we were involved in from attack, from aerial attack. Um, if I remember correctly, the about the first half we, we manufactured or we had a 100 single-seat aircraft and initially that was a fighter version, an air defence version. Um, the second batch, if you like, were also able to do ground attack and the radar itself had a ground mapping capability, the, the Serrano 2 radar. Later, the first, uh, let's say it was 50 aircraft, were retrofitted and all of our aircraft then were capable of air defence and ground attack. They could um, carry um, missiles and guns to enable them to defend um, Australia and its territories, but also carry a limited number of bombs that could be used in an offensive capability. Now, when you say ground mapping, that's that's part of the process of identifying targets, is it? Yes. Um, if you're going to use the aircraft at night to find and attack a target, then having the ability to use the radar to map the ground so you could locate where you are and navigate to a target was uh, important. And certainly the Serrano 2... Um, that we had, and I think we even had that capability before the French aircraft, had a limited capability of navigating at night using the radar. Now, 100 aircraft, is that the equivalent of four squadrons or three? Well, it was seen as four squadrons and a operational conversion unit, OCU, two OCU in this case. Uh, that was uh, the, the mix of aircraft that was deemed. Now, we also had a number of uh, dual aircraft, and for training, yep. Um, and I think we had about fifteen or seventeen of those. And where were these squadrons based? So initially, two uh, OCU, the training organisation, and two of the squadrons were at Williamtown and in Newcastle, in, in New Newcastle, South Wales, yeah. And two were in Butterworth, 
Malaysia. In Malaysia. Okay. Now, you flew Mirages yourself. Um, just tell us about that. Did you know that the Queensland Air Museum is staffed entirely by volunteers? And we need more. There are a wide range of things that you might be able to contribute if you would be willing to become a volunteer at the Queensland Air Museum. In addition to the workshop and the engine shop, restoring aircraft, maintaining aircraft, maintaining the property, the buildings and the grounds, we have a, an extensive library and we need volunteers to help with accessioning, storing articles, maintaining those. We also have a crew who work on the front counter. Every single day we're open, except Christmas Day and Easter Friday. We need volunteers on the front counter to provide customer service, to be the, the face of the museum for visitors who come in. And let's face it, we want our visitors to have the best experience possible. So if you are interested at all in becoming a volunteer, you must be 18 years or older, you must become a member of the museum. We will train you and equip you in whichever area suits you best. Come in for one day a week, come in for seven days a week. It's entirely up to you. We would love to talk with you. So get in touch with us through the website. Let us know you're interested in becoming a volunteer and we would love to speak to you. Well, I came off uh, a pilot's course and was posted to fighters. The initial training we did at 2OCU was on the Mackie, Mackies, yeah. which we'd had used for our uh, all-through jet training at Pierce in Western Australia. So we learnt the basic uh, fighter um, capability at 2OCU before we went on to a Mirage conversion course and then expanded that into using the aircraft operationally. At the end of that course, you got posted to one of the squadrons. Mackie to Mirage, that's a big step up. It, it, it certainly was, um, both in total performance uh, but also in capability. Um, the Mirage was a very fast aircraft. Uh, the, the Delta basically dictated that its approach speed would be about 180 knots. Mm. So it was a slippery beast. It rolled, its roll rate was uh, exceptionally high. All aircraft are, are compromises in their design. Fighter aircraft need to be nimble. Uh, it was determined that as well as being able to sustain high G to turn, that you needed to be able to roll quickly. And one of the issues with um, high roll rate in an aircraft, the, the shape of a Mirage and, and also something like a Starfighter, is that if you roll it fast enough, the aircraft uh, can then start pitching. And that, in the early days, uh, was something that we were taught to avoid, obviously. Uh, but it was one of the characteristics of, of aircraft in that period, noting that um, we had made rapid advances in capability of aircraft from the end of World War II, the Gloucester Meteor, first Western jet fighter was 1944, and you're talking about a Mach 2 capability in the early 50s. So it wasn't just in the aerodynamics, the engines, but also in, in the electronics. In this case, we'd gone from no radar to a, a, a quite a capable 
both air-to-air and air-to-ground mapping radar, and the weapons themselves, from, from machine guns, cannons, but also we'd equipped the Sabre with Sidewinder, air-to-air, infrared or heat-seeking missiles, and they uh, basically altered how you went about fighting air-to-air. Mm. The Mirage introduced then the Matra R530 missile, which was a first generation of radar-guided air-to-air missile, which gave you then a capability at night or in all weather. So we each step of the way change how you'd fought in the air. So air-to-air combat, I mean, the first thing that comes to my mind is dogfighting. Yes. Right Now, obviously, that was developed at the time of piston engines and quite relatively slow speeds yes. and different characteristics altogether from a Delta Wing <laughs> Mac 2 fighter. So air-to-air combat must have um, taken on a whole, a whole new kind of characteristic then. Yes, and, and in the Mirage's case, uh, we practised uh, air intercept at night. Uh, to do that, you needed to be guided to the target uh, by the, the, the ground defence radars. Once you acquired the target on your airborne radar, then you could manoeuvre your aircraft to engage the uh, enemy aircraft. And that could be using the long-range missile air-to-air missile, which was the Matra 530, or if you got close enough and could determine where the target was, the Sidewinder. Daytime, of course, you could use your cannon as well and get into a dogfight. Now, we had uh, John Lloyd in here a couple of weeks ago talking about flying the Hunters. Yes. And uh, he called them the Rolls-Royce of, of aircraft, but I guess he's biased. He's allowed to be. But he also talked about the exercises that with the Hunters up against the Mirages and had some very interesting things to, to say about why the Hunters tended to have an advantage. At slower speeds. Yes. So the Delta Wing doesn't work well at low speed. Is that right? That's correct. What you never want to do is fight uh, the opposition on their terms. You want to make sure that you uh, keep in your where you where you have where superiority. Your strengths are, yeah. And certainly, one of the things we learnt um, with the Mirage, and we did that against the Saber in Australia, because we was when I did uh, two OCU my Mirage training, we were still operating the Saber at two OCU in the process of handing those over to the Indonesians. So you quickly learnt that if you got into a slow-speed turning fight against an aircraft like the Hunter or the Sabre, you were going to lose. (laughs) So in the case of the Hunter, um, when I was posted to Butterworth, to 3 Squadron, we spent about three months of the year in Singapore as part of the the Five Power Defence Agreement. And uh, at that stage, the Republic of Singapore Air Force their fighter aircraft was the Hunter. At that time, their more senior people were RAF. Um, As the Singaporeans developed their capability, they uh, progressed through the ranks until, in the end, their squadrons were totally manned by Singaporeans. But certainly when I was there in the um, early 70s, it was a mixture of RAF experienced people and less experienced Singaporeans learning their trade. So if we went out to do a 4v4 for 
mirages versus four hunters over the South China Sea, you could always expect that they would try to increase their advantage by, I won't say cheating. <laughs> uh, so quite often they'd have uh, six hunters and the two, two of them up high, uh, <laughs> hoping that we wouldn't see them. Not very sporting. Not very sporting. And I always recall one day we went out and it finished up instead of a 4v4, it was a 6v me. <laughs> six versus one. Six versus one. Oh, and how did that go, Dave? <laughs> um, I just um, made sure that I maintained my speed supersonic, I think I was, for the initial attack. Went through, pitched up to the two uh, aircraft up high, got the wingman, who was the least experienced, and kept going. <laughs> to turn around and come back and do the second one in the same manner and go home. And uh, in the debrief, they said, why didn't you stop to fight? And I said, I think that's obvious. (laughs) (laughs) So Uh, we're always very wary. And, of course, you're always debriefed, um, usually in the bar afterwards. (laughs) Now, look, here's a question that comes from somebody who's just simply uh, an outsider who's interested. Does it feel any different to be flying supersonic? Does it sound different? Does it, you know, are you aware that you're travelling faster than sound? In an aircraft that's designed to go supersonic, like a Mirage or an F-111, um, it really is a number um, to you in the cockpit, unless you are very low, in which case you can see things going past <laughs> very quickly. But if you're at high altitude at twice the speed of sound then really, then it's a number. Okay. But in the aircraft, uh, you don't know that you're supersonic. Okay. So let's talk now uh, about the Queensland Air Museum's Mirage A316. Um, you said earlier this was the first of the Mirage three O's that had all Australian components. So it was allocated to the Aircraft Research and Development Unit. Now, if you if somebody comes in and has a look at our Mirage, they'll see the logo with the ARDU on the tail, the bright yellow tail. Yes. What was the uh, t- the purpose of the uh, ARDU? Well, ARDU was uh, the and, and still is the the organisation within the Royal Australian Air Force that does uh, developmental test flying. In this case, with the Mirage, uh, that could be for new weapons. And certainly, if you look at the Karinga trials, Australia was developing a cluster bomb unit um, as an Indigenous weapon. The, um, the trials for that, from an aircraft point of view, you'd have to determine the carriage limits, the release limits and all the rest. And, the, and, the, and for the weapon itself... Um, its characteristics from a ballistic point of view. So Arju would do the trials on all aircraft. Um, anytime you modified them, Arju would get involved. So the Mirage uh, was at Arju. The, I can't remember how many they had, but certainly the one we have was uh, one of the aircraft. I believe at the time of its demise, um, it was uh, Arju was based in Victoria and the aircraft, I think, were flown out of Avalon. And on that particular day, the pilot was doing uh, continuation training, keeping current on the aircraft, wasn't actually test flying. And as part of that, uh, you would divert uh, to a close airfield. Suitable airfield was Tullamarine, which was Melbourne's new airfield, of course. 
And um, the, the, like any accident, uh, in this case, uh, the pilot was going to do a touch and go, but because the wheels weren't down, it, it became a, scrop, a, a scrape and stop. <laughs> um, and, and we can laugh about it because he's okay, was okay. Yes, Mr. Dasso had always said that you, you shouldn't try to land a Mirage with an approach speed of 180 knots and quite high nose attitude. Uh, should never try to do a wheels up landing. Uh, but um, in this case, the pilot did and got away with it. You could call it a successful wheels up landing, That's I suppose. That you can walk away from it. But seriously, thank thank goodness. And yes. um, but this was the end of that aircraft's service life, wasn't it? Really, I believe at the time they looked at it and, and determined that it was slightly bent. Um, I think later on they remeasured it when they had much more accurate um, capability using lasers, and determined that it probably could have been fixed. But at the time. It they determined it, it wouldn't fly again. And so it was then used um, as part of the scientific research into the Mirage and uh, then later disposed of. So that was 1974, I think, the wheels up landing. And um, anyway, so ignominious ending, although, as I say, thank goodness nobody was hurt, um, came down. It had been doing, as you say, the Karinga uh, cluster bomb testing and uh, then came to the end of its life re- realistically in 1974. It was disposed of by the RAAF in 1986 and went into, uh, per- I think, personal hands and, and muse- it became a museum piece. And the uh, Queensland Air Museum was able to purchase that in 2016. So um, here we have it in Hangar 2 and it's right next to our Sabre. Yes, and uh, just describe the display because there's more going on with that display than just the aircraft, isn't there? Well, I think it's, it's an excellent display in that uh, besides the airframe, it's got two of the drop tanks that were used um, throughout the life of the Mirage. It also has the engine, the ATAR, next to it, so you can see what that looked like. But also um, a sectionized Serrano three sorry serrano two radar so if you're interested in what a air-to-air and air-to-ground radar looked like in a fighter aircraft of uh, late 50s early 60s design then you can go and see that and i think that adds significantly to the display we also have underneath it a matra r530 the radar guided air-to-air missile first of its type for australia and then something that's a little unusual is currently mounted on the centre line is a jamming pod. And that particular pod was a training device. Uh, it was mounted on a target aircraft. Other Mirages would then approach it using their radar. At a certain time, the pilot of that aircraft would turn on the jammer and the attacking aircraft could then experience what it was like to be jammed their radar to be jammed so for the uh, aircraft that had locked on to the um the aircraft with the jammer it would suddenly their their radar would cease to operate is that correct uh, you'd get a lot of noise on the radar scope mm. um, you learned that if you continued approaching the aircraft the power of your radar might overcome the power of the jammer and you'd get burned through and be able to see the target again 
So all these characteristics is what you were trying to teach the the uh, Mirage pilots. And you then transitioned to F one elevens after you'd been on the Mirages. How many hours or how many how many years did you fly the so Mirages? I only did one operational tour with three squadron, so that was uh, two years. So in the end, I had about eight hundred hours on on Mirage. Um, I was posted then to the the, the new aircraft, the F one eleven, and was part then of the early development of the F one eleven capability. In Australia. And you were kind enough a number of months ago, I think back in February 2022, to um, give us a little bit of the story of the F-111 and your experiences with it. Once again, it was a toe in the water. It wasn't much detail, but uh, we appreciate that. So if anyone wants to hear some of Dave's recollection uh, of his uh, RAAF career, but also the F-111, you can go back and find that episode right at the start of Season 1. Dave, this has been fascinating. I I really appreciate the fact that you bring this technical expertise as well as this personal experience uh, of uh, a Mirage pilot and an RAAF officer. Dave, thank you very much for talking to us today. You're welcome. So that's our episode Dave Dunlop is a true gentleman and we are very grateful for all the things that he does around the Queensland Air Museum. Thank you for listening today. Don't forget we are open from 10am till 4pm every day except Christmas Day and Easter Friday and we would love to see you. Come and visit us soon.